How many remember G.I. Joe? Look at that. All right. Uh, actually came out, G.I. Joe came out in the 60s, but it didn't get popular until the 80s. I'm a child of the late 70s, 80s, and I had them all. I had Duke, the good guys, right? Duke and Snake Eyes. Oh, I even had some of the enemies, Cobra Commander. Oh. All right. Um, they, they commissioned, because of the popular toy, they commissioned a uh, series of first that came off as five episode, two five episode miniseries. Got so popular they did 95 cartoons. Uh, at the end of many of the cartoons, they put these public service announcements. Do you ever wonder why they did that? Um, it was a time when, uh, not because of some sort of conscience, but because of, of the, the family's stability and conscience, not so much Hasbro's conscience, but the family's conscience. They said, hey, you are promoting war and murder, right? And they said, oh, we're going to fix that. We're going to curve that, create some balance by putting these public service announcements on the end of these these, uh, cartoons. And they would always end the same way. Did you catch it? They would, little kids would say, well, now we know. And then they would say, and knowing is half the battle, right? Um, I loved it. Uh, what's the other half of the battle? Doing. Book of Obadiah fits well as a public service announcement that knowing is half the battle, but doing is the other half of the battle. Open your Bibles. You might have to look in the index for it. All right, because it's not a book that you probably have ever heard a sermon on. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It is 21 verses, 291 Hebrew words. Apparently, Obadiah considered words a high-priced commodity um, because he didn't spare any words for who he is. There are 12 Obadiahs in Scripture And we don't know which Obadiah wrote it because look at verse 1. It just says, the vision of Obadiah. That's all it says. Who is this? We don't know. Um, But what's unique about this is it's not only the shortest book in your Old Testament, it's also the one book that is written primarily to a foreign nation. Only three prophets focused um, a judgment on a foreign nation Obadiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, but Obadiah is a prophet, the only one of the prophets sent to that nation. Now, you get Jonah, who's sent to the Ninevites, but his letter was written to the Israelites. And yes, this book has information about the Israelites, but this is primarily a judgment written, a book written, a prophet sent to an enemy, Edom. Now, it is a vision like Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, they all had visions. Obadiah is given a vision here. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, you are meant in these 21 verses to compare Edom to Obadiah himself. Obadiah's name means, if you want to write a note, it means worshiper of Yahweh. Worshiper of Yahweh. In his humility, you are meant to compare that to Edom in their pride. This is a book that takes on God's greatest grievance. 
And we have in the book of Proverbs a list of the things that God thinks is most detestable. Did you, did you know that in the book of Proverbs? At the top of the list, do you remember? It's not the uh, seven deadly sins from uh, church history. This is biblical seven deadly sins. And at the top of the list, translations have a hard time there in Proverbs translating it. They will translate it haughty eyes, pride. But not just pride, pride that affects the filter of the human soul, the eyes, where you look at everything through the filter, through the lens of your own pride. So it's an attitude of I'm better than you, I'm more important than you, my people are more important than your people, and it is those haughty eyes that he takes on in Edom's life. And he casts out judgment on Edom for what those haughty eyes have done. So this book and its application, just to put the, uh, the cookies on the low shelf here, this is about the destructiveness of pride and the consequences of living self-serving lives. Through the haughty eyes and the self-serving lives that you have, God says that is the top most detestable thing. Thank you, John Paul. It's easy to forget those lights back there. It is easy also to fall into this pattern of self-centeredness in the American life. So Obadiah fits well against us as well because haughty eyes get you into all sorts of trouble. So we're going to look at that. There's a one particular consequence that he highlights above the rest, and we're going to catch it down by verse 11, um, but we'll get there. Uh, let, let, me, let me begin this just by talking about the background of this book. Who is Edom? Okay. Edom is a country, a people called the Edomites who are descendants of Esau. Now, you, you know who Esau is. He is the twin brother of Jacob, of, of, of Jacob. Jacob and Esau are born at the same time in Genesis chapter 25. And it said from the very beginning that they were fighting and struggling in the womb. Now, if you've ever had twins, some of you have had twins. Uh, some, if you have had, if you're a lady and you've had a, a baby, you know there's the kicking and the pushing. Well, this, through the divine inspiration of Scripture, they knew that they were fighting each other. And as the story goes, as they're born, Jacob is grabbing the heel of Esau because even as a baby, in some subconscious spiritual sense, he understood that to be born first in their culture meant everything. You got the birthright. You got the blessing. You got the inheritance. And so Esau is born first, and Jacob is fighting him from birth. Now, quickly we see this sibling rivalry. Have, did you have a sibling rivalry growing up? Raise your hand if you had a sibling rivalry. All right, M most people have struggled. Hey, don't, my own kids are raising their hands. I saw that. <laughs> right, it, it's pretty common. Um, we get proverbs of this kind of sibling rivalry um, to people like, clans that have family feuds like the Hatfields and McCoys, like Jacob and Esau. This spanned centuries of hostility. We're going to highlight some of that right now. First and foremost, when they grew up as young men, it became clear that one was an outdoors boy and one was an indoors boy. Jacob was a mama's boy and an indoors boy, and that fed the sibling rivalry because his mom took his side and actually helped him con in some ways as they grew up. The first con came as Esau, the outdoorsman, came in hungry and Jacob, the indoorsman, was watching the Food Channel, Food Network, and had cooked some good stew. 
and he said, hey, sell me your birthright. You're, you're, you're on death's door starving. Sell me your birthright for this stew. And crazy Esau took him up on it and sold his birthright. Fast forward to the day of their father's, the time of their father's death, blind Isaac gives the blessing. And in their culture, this was like a contract. And Jacob doesn't con Esau in this. He cons his own father to get the blessing. And in the course of Hebrew culture, they would, the father would put his hand on the oldest and give the blessing of inheritance and the blessing of prosperity. And Jacob sneaks in. He puts a, a pelt of an animal on his arm because his brother was so hairy. And he goes up to his blind father and says, hey, I'm, I'm Esau. Give me the blessing. And you would think if that would happen in today's culture, there could be lawsuits and get that was under false pretense and we could get that removed. In their culture, it was a binding deal. And he snookers. That's in the Hebrew somewhere, snooker. All right. He snookers him into giving the blessing to Jacob. And of course, you can imagine the kind of animosity that was created between Jacob and Esau because of what his brother did. And through the course of Genesis, they are fighting and they are striving against each other and both become wealthy, both become great. But in Genesis 32, Jacob has a spiritual encounter with the God of Israel. Matter of fact, his name is changed to Israel. He becomes Israel. He goes from Jacob, which means hill grabber, a euphemism for conning, in their culture eventually, to Israel. His name is changed in Genesis 32. When he wrestles with God, he loses. His hip is dislocated. And God says, you are now to be called, one translator, one commentary says that Israel means God mastered man, that God cannot use a man greatly until he has conquered him greatly. And Jacob has conquered greatly. First thing he does is he tries in the next chapters to make it up to his brother, maybe out of fear because his brother was hot on his heels trying to kill him. And they try to make it right, but it doesn't quite work. And so as Esau creates his nation, he becomes very hostile, and his descendants are very hostile to, uh, to Jacob and the Israelites. They, they, they form their country in a little area to the southeast of uh, the Dead Sea. Uh, it's an area, a little country canal at that point called Edom, 15 miles wide, 70 miles long, and they did it in the mountainous area. They actually carved houses and storefront and, and places of worship out of the stone. You can go there today, today. Edom does not exist as a country. This prophecy here by verse 10 will say they will be completely cut off in their prophecy. They don't exist today, but you can still see the existence of their culture. In the third century BC, the Nabataean Arabs conquered their primary city, the Edomite city of, and they called it Petra. Have you heard of the city Petra? Um, you can go there today, you go through these, the crags in the rocks and you walk your way down about a mile, two miles down into the, into the mountainous area and they have literally carved their city out of the corner of the cliff. And in the movie, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, they have a scene in there from the treasury of Petra. When the sun comes up or goes down, the sun hits the rock just right, and it looks red rose. So the phrase Petra means the red rose city. And it was incredibly hard militarily to conquer that area. It was conquered. It was conquered by the Nabataeans in the third century BC, and then Rome conquered it in 105 AD, Petra was conquered by the Romans. 
but it was impregnable in many ways and it created great pride. All the Edomites would do for centuries is they would go and they would raid and they would kill and they would pillage the Israelites and then they would run back to their, to their city fortress, this fortress in the mountains. And they prospered. It was a crossroads of many trade routes and they prospered and it became a great source of pride. But that, that fight kept happening and it came to the point where even Moses had to give a law under the inspiration of the scripture, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 23 said, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. But they didn't obey it too much because they couldn't in some ways because the Edomites were such a thorn in their flesh. As you go on in, in scripture, 1 Samuel 14, Edom is listed as one of the enemies that Saul fought. 2 Samuel 8, David subdued Edom. 2 Kings 8, Edom revolted again against Israel, and the prophet after prophet spoke against the Edomites. Isaiah said that Edom was doomed for judgment in chapter 34. Jeremiah said that God would bring calamity on Edom in chapter 49. Ezekiel said Edom would be wiped off the planet. They were, their towns would be laid to ruin in Ezekiel 35. Malachi predicted their destruction. Lamentations chapter 4 said God would punish Edom for their sin. It's all throughout scripture, but no, no scripture gives as much attention as the book of Obadiah, 21 verses. We're gonna make our way pretty fast through these verses. As we overview it, I want you to notice the reasons why, all right? So let's read. Verse one, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Edom is mentioned a 100 times in scripture. Whew. Important, Son, the descendants of Esau. We have heard, here's the vision, we have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise, let us go up against her for battle. What is that? Well, there's ambassadors. Here's part of the vision. The vision that Obadiah got, like Isaiah and Micah and others, he got a vision of ambassadors going around, the allies of Edom. That's what their pride was in. We're gonna see that as you, as you go down to verse seven. They had lots of allies and their pride came from those allies. And he said, your allies, here's the vision, Edom, your allies are sending ambassadors around. They're gonna take you out. And not only are they sending envoys around saying that, it's gonna happen. Okay, so God has ordained this change in policy. This is happening because God has ordained it. History, listen to me, history is his story. God governs the affairs of men. For the better part now of four months, I have been, uh, under the encouragement of one of our elders, uh, actively reading a very, in, in many people's minds, one of the most neutral of, of newspapers, the Wall Street Journal. I've been trying to read it every day, highlights, high points, sometimes the whole thing. And as, you know why I read the Wall Street Journal? Because I read newspapers to see how God is governing his world. That's biblical. This world is being governed by God. And the government of the Lord is seen as he rises up and tears down leaders. And Edom has been risen up, and now God has ordained their destruction. Arise, let us go up against her for battle. Verse two, behold, I will make you small. You think you're large, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. How would you like to think that is God's opinion of you as a nation? You are greatly despised. Why? Well, what was that list from Proverbs? Haughty eyes. Look at verse three. 
the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You have a bad attitude. You have haughty eyes. You who live in the clefts of the rock. Remember, their geography was mountainous with houses built into the sides of, of cliffs. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? You got a big head. They thought they were invulnerable. Though you build high up like an eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. The higher you go up, finish it. The farther you fall. That's that verse right there. Now look look at what he does. So not only is he probably gonna destroy them, look at what else God has prophesied. Verse five. Wealth is plundered. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. You, you think so much about your cities and you think so much about your silver that I'm gonna take your cities and your silver. I'm gonna plunder your wealth. They were located on, a, on several major trade routes. They had mineral deposits they could mine. They could mine copper. They were wealthy and God says, I'm gonna take it all. Keep reading. Would you... Would they not steal only until they had enough? But not these people. They're going to take everything. When a robber comes in your house, they come in and they steal what they think is valuable and they leave the rest. I thought it was interesting. The International Mission Board missionaries there in uh, Kathmandu, they were saying right after the earthquake in Nepal, um, they were robbed. Their house was robbed and they took every last bit of their electronics except the Jesus film projector kit, which was probably, and they said, the most expensive thing they had. By the way, it's a, it's a ratty old thing that's outdated. So guess what our church did? Some of your money went to buy a Jesus film backpack and we left it with Omret and we gave them a new one. So now they got two, all right? But the robbers didn't take that by the providence of God. Robbers are picky and maybe they thought they couldn't get rid of it. Maybe they didn't know what it was, all right? But these robbers here in Edom, they're gonna take everything. Verse five, if grapes, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? This was Mosaic law, that when you harvested the field of wheat or the vineyard of grapes, you were to leave, a, I read this in my quiet time this last week, uh, you, you were to leave for the poor, it was their social security system or their welfare system, you were to leave for the poor, that they were to get out there and work. The poor weren't to get a free hand, they were to actually get out there and harvest and work and they could get their own food just by getting out there. This for Edom would not be the case. They would take every grape, every silver, every city. Look at this. Oh, verse six, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasure searched out. They're gonna take it all. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. What is that? Not only would your cities be destroyed by your pride and your silver be taken, your alliances would be broken. They're gonna deceive you. You think you got some partners? No. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. They just don't get it. Poor Edom. They are stupid. And they are meant to be a lesson to the nations. They don't know how little they are and how God has taken his hands off of them. All right, and again, in history, they're wiped off. 300 BC, the Nabataean Arabs take them out. 105 uh, A.D., the Romans take out the Nabataeans. I mean, just this group is gone. Verse eight, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? All right, so what is the fourth thing? Wisdom would be destroyed. They would be made even stupider. 
right? And with military might, if you aren't wise in your military, then you're gonna fall even faster. And understanding from the mountain of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed. O Taman. Have you heard the phrase Taman? This is a city where Job's friend Aliphaz is from. It's an Edomite city. It's one of their stronger cities. It would be dismayed. Your mighty men, everyone, verse 9, would may be cut off from the mountains of Esau by slaughter. Why has he said all this? Well, we got a hint, right, up in verse 3, arrogance. But what did their haughty eyes, their I'm better than you, what did that lead them to do? Well, verse 10. Here's why I'm going to take you out. Two things. Number one, because of your violence to your brother Jacob. You touch my people, you touch Israel. Politically, that is a dumb move, right? This is why America has been pro-Israel in many ways, why scripturally, as Christians, the New Testament says we're to be pro-Israel, right? Your violence has led this to violence. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever and you will disappear from history. This is a great example of Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. But look at how, and I think verse 11 is how it all plays out the strongest. Circle verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, Israel, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. What is that? His biggest beef with the Edomites is that their pride led them to violence and led them to indifference. They stood aloof. If you're writing notes, that is the key message to Obadiah. Amos, remember Amos? God's justice will come against those who treat others with injustice. This is God's justice will come against those who treat others with indifference. Because of you, your haughty spirit, you do nothing. You say you're driving down the road and someone's, I, I, I did this last week, I'm driving down the road and I see a 30-year-old single mom broken down on Dallin. I thought in my haughty spirit for a few seconds, I've got to get to this meeting, I can't be late. And then I remembered what I was studying <laughs> and I pulled over, Dallin Road was shut down because of this lady in her, in her car and she was teared up and I ran and started pushing and I, man, that truck was heavy, just me pushing. She was in the car, and it became contagious. And other guys, three others, one in scrubs and a couple others in suits, they all got out, and we started pushing this truck up into another parking lot. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like a story told in the New Testament, all right? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Jesus tells this parable. I call it the parable of the bad Jew, not the good Samaritan. There's Jewish people that knew better. Christians know better. We have the compassion of Jesus and we are impassive. Knowing is half the battle, but doing, that's the other half of the battle. In this story, it isn't called a parable. I think this was a true story. I think this actually happened. His followers don't say to him later, hey, you made that up. That would never happen. We Jews would never do that. No, I could see some shame. Oh, yeah, we did that. I can see the Edomites going, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we, uh, we didn't help our brother. 
This road that this man who's robbed is on is a busy road. Uh, The Romans should have protected it. The Jews should have protected it. This is a busy road. As it happens, by chance, a priest was going down on that road. It's almost tongue in cheek. By chance, a spiritual pastor, a leader, was walking down the road and he looks and he sees the man and there's too many people around. I think that's reading between the lines, but I think it's a valid interpretation of this. This is a busy road. There were a couple of sociologists that called this the bystander effect. If if you are driving down the road and you're the only one, you're much more likely to stop and help in an emergency. But the greater the number of people, the less chance you'll show compassion. The bystander effect. This pastor says, I'm too busy. I don't know what his excuse was. Busy road, there's bandits. I've got something to do, I'm more important. So he passed on by on the other side. Likewise, it gets worse. The next verse in this story, a Levite. It would go from the spiritual leader to one of the spiritual people, just a general spiritual community. He comes by and he comes, Jesus in his story says, that spiritual person comes actually to the place on the road where he's at and he doesn't do anything. That's how absurd this is. Somebody else is gonna help. Somebody else is gonna stand up. Somebody else is gonna vote. Somebody else is going to speak out. Somebody else is gonna take up arms in this way, verbally, physically. Somebody else is gonna help. Well, somebody else comes around. Verse 33 of, I'm in Luke 10, if you wanna write a note, don't turn there. But it was a Samaritan, an enemy of God. By the way, a Samaritan is also in Obadiah. We're gonna hit that here in a second. Samaritan was on a journey, came to him, felt compassion. That compassion, he came to him and it showed up in his works. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine. It cost him his money. It was, he put him on his own beast. He's bleeding, he's oozing. It's uncomfortable. Love, compassion is inconvenient. It, I was sweated down after I pushed that truck. whoop de doo that's not a big price. This was a big price. He takes him to an inn. He gives him, he gives the innkeeper two days of his wages. And he says, when I come back, if he has any more, I'm gonna pay that as well. It cost him. Obadiah, Edom, opposite. These weren't good Samaritans. But I do think that's the point for us today. How does this apply to the church? You're to be a good Samaritan. You're not to be a bad Edomite or a bad Jew. You're to be a good follower of of Jesus. And what does that mean? Knowing and doing. Verse 11, look at verse 12. Do not gloat over your brother's day. Don't feel good over their suffering. The day of his misfortune. That's part of condoning sin. When you, when you in your haughty eyes say, yeah, they got what they had coming to them. I'm so glad they did that because that person, they think they're Mr. Goody Tissues and they're always quoting Bible verses and I'm so glad it happened to them. What? Don't gloat over them. You rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast. They weren't only indifferent, they were glad that this was happening to Israel in the day of their distress. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth. They're, They're picking them off. All the stuff that they left, they're picking it out. In the day of their disaster, do not stand. You see the repetition? What's the repetition? When someone's going through something hard, 
You don't take advantage of it. You're not happy for them. Son, verse 14, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. What, what is that? What are we talking about here? Um, I'm assuming a little something here that you know what this is addressing. This is addressing one of the captivities. Remember, there were 10 tribes, 10, two, 12 tribes, 10 in the north were taken out by the Assyrians. Two tribes in the south were taken out by the Ten, two tribes of the Israelites in the south, Judah and Benjamin, were taken out by the Babylonians in 605 to 586. This book is written right after that. This is earlier than 586, so maybe 550 or somewhere in there. It's written at that time. And basically, Edom is when Babylon is taking out Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they're taking out the three Hebrews and, they've, and the Babylonians have taken the pick of the royals and they're taking them to Babylon to brainwash them and give them Babylonian names that we see in the book of Daniel. The Edomites, when there's fugitives from the captivity, they're standing at the fork and they're turning them in. So they're not only indifferent, they're not only celebrating, they're actually helping the Babylonians gather up the fugitives. You cut down, that you're killing them. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their misfortune. So they help capture them. All right, so if you're, if you're gonna put a, a point, right, in application of this book, the first 14 verses are about the Good Samaritan, that there is no such thing as innocent bystanders. If you know and do not do, that is, as, that is worse. You're accountable, you know, if you ask our staff, one of the things we pray for the most is accountable, responsible followers of Jesus. There's so few of us in any church that are responsible. We're waiting for everybody else to do it. And the bigger the church, guess what? The less responsible people want to be. We come to people and we say, hey, can you help out? And they're like, I, I, maybe this once. Just don't give me the permanent job because I want to have freedom. I want to be free. No, the good Samaritan takes responsibility. They have compassion. All right, so that's great. But the rest of this book is about the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over nations, that God is in control. So maybe you're here and you're the one that's dead on the road. No, notice, notice the perspective in the Good Samaritan story. The, the robber saw the man on the road as a victim. The Levite and the priest saw him as an inconvenience, a nuisance. But here today, if you are robbed on the road of life, I mean, you're beat up by it. We do not see you as, a, as a, somebody to take advantage of. We do not see you as an inconvenience. We see you as somebody we wanna help. We wanna come alongside of you. Not everybody in here does, right? We're not all on the same level of maturity. But by and large, this church and its leadership wants to help you. If you'll give us a chance, we will help you. And we believe that the greatest help we can give is to introduce you to this God who is a God of sovereignty. In other words, the Good Samaritan, we holler and we help. The God, the sovereign God of Scripture calls you to be humble and to have hope. You can have hope. Let's read the rest of these verses. Why, 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 not, why not just... Turn over, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, all the nations. Circle the word all. As you have done, it will be done to you, reaping and sowing. Your dealings will return on your 
own head. We call that the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. You want to treat people with terrorism and violating human rights? Well, that's going to happen to you. Because, verse 16, just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. The bad nations of this world will not get away with it. God is sovereign over all nations. But, verse 17, on Mount Zion, for Israel, Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. There will be a remnant, and it will be, the city will be holy again. And the house of Jacob, which is the southern two kingdoms, will possess the possessions. They had a promise, and the Davidic kingdom would reign on this planet. This is talking about King Jesus taking Jerusalem as his throne. This is about the second coming of Jesus to this planet. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire. They're going to be on fire. Jews from that area will be on fire. We see that in the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation. And the house of Joseph, that would be the ten tribes of the north, will be a flame as well. And the house of Esau will be a stubble. Twelve nations of Israel will rise up, and King Jesus will be on this planet, and it will be great, and Esau and his brothers will be stubble, gone. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. They will be united and enter the messianic kingdom together. Verse 19, then those of the Negev, this would be the Edomites, will possess the mountain of Esau. And those of Shephelah, the Philistines, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, Samaritans. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host, the sons of Israel, basically the promised land. God will defeat their enemies. God will deliver them and the promised land will be theirs. And the exiles of this host of the Israel, those among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad and possess the cities of Negev, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. This, was, this is going to be prophetically fulfilled by the messianic kingdom. Isn't it interesting that Jesus will have deliverers to take the mountain? The Bible teaches that the church will reign with Christ. And this is part of that. Look at how it ends. Verse 21, look at the last part. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Say that with me. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Be reminded here of God's ultimate victory over the nations. That every child of God looks forward to a day when the peoples of this, na this nation will be the peoples of Jesus. The nations of this world will be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day. Until that day, God's church must keep praying, thy kingdom come. Do you pray that? Thy kingdom come. That's what we pray. Revelation eleven fifteen that his nation, these nations of this planet will be under King Jesus and it will reign forever and ever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. God will deliver you, Israel. God will defeat your enemies, Israel. God will establish his kingdom. Now, as we apply this, right, look at the list in your notes, right? Number one, if you have a bystander effect, if, 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 if you think that not acting is what you need to do, if I just, if I lay low and don't speak up, it'll be okay, you're mistaken. Oh, oh but not acting is acting, 
Not speaking up is speaking up. You're saying something by not speaking up. Not standing is, is standing. You're standing for something by not standing. And going with the flow is still going. You hear me? No, no, but look, look at the list here. Look at the list. In pride, that's the first thing. They, this bad attitude flourishes in pride. I am more important than you. If that's your attitude, repent of that today. What about in league? You have a herd mentality. You're in league with people that have this they are not one of us attitude, right? You have this political party that you're lifting up as the end all beautiful thing. No, we're Christians. We're, we're ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom. We're not Democrats or Republicans. We're followers of Jesus. This in league, they had allies. Are you proud of your allies and who you stand for? Maybe there's repentance there. You're in might. Might makes right is your attitude. Hey, as long as we're the bigger guy with the bigger stick, everything's cool. That's what they thought. And they stood aloof. Or you're in the right. Better them than us attitude. I'm in the right. And I'm so glad it's happening to them. That's a bad attitude. And then lastly, you're in the crowd. You have a herd mentality. We'll just give them a taste attitude. Let them fill it out. Which one of these is your bad attitude? I can think of two or three that I struggle with. <laughs> but here's the hope. The hope is that God is sovereign and this is his world. This is my father's world. This is not the American world or the Nepali world. This is God's world. And the Bible ends with Jesus is Lord of all. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so we stand up for kingdom agendas. You got an email this morning, if you're on our e-news, and it says, we are calling all Christians to join us in supporting legislature that stands for religious freedom, protection of the unborn, protection of women and young girls in this bathroom law issue, and the defense of traditional marriage and family. Um, there is a big movement of pastors around the nation. And uh, I was at a big rally last week. I'm, I'm going to be having a meeting uh, with about 200 other pastors and the lieutenant governor in about two weeks. Mark and I are going to go down there. Mark, why don't you come forward? And Nate, why don't you come forward? Um, they have an interesting perspective on all that we're seeing in our nation. And there is a time-sensitive issue that would be a good application of this. So a good application of this text is for us to stand up and speak up and act up, to not just know, but to do. And that's why with all this happening, there is a lot of legislation, and I'm calling you to be a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> and then to be a good citizen of America. This is one application of a great text of Obadiah, that you remove pride and the haughty eyes that you have, and look at people through the eyes of Christ, and look at your nation through the eyes of Christ, and the sovereignty of God is the thing that leads you. So if you're here today and you're struggling, God is sovereign over your problems. And we want you to know that. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that your sovereignty has been felt here today. Um, not anger, but love. Not, not some sort of wet noodle conviction, though, but a strong conviction that we love those and love the things that you love. And we hate the things that you hate. And you call us to do that because if you love somebody, then you have to hate the things that hurt them. And this is one example, this Senate Bill 6 and so many other things uh, that we've listed from abortion on down. These are things that you hate. 
And we want to be a part of your kingdom agenda on this planet. So help us speak up, stand up uh, with whether it's helping or hollering or whether it's hope and humility. We want to know uh, that you're in the middle of us and we are in the middle of you. In Jesus' name, amen.